Salutations. I am Kenneth Barrios, leadership coach and owner of Key Bravo Leadership Development with the mission of unleashing your talents and maximizing your impact without compromising your time. Welcome to our 16th Law Success series, where I read out loud about 20 to 30 minutes of this great tone for your audio pleasure. This book is the foundation of which all other personal and professional development is based, written by Napoleon Hill in 1928. I am now using this as public domain book as my foundation to success, and I want to bring you along for the journey. So please enjoy, and your feedback is always welcome. With gratitude, thank you. For the purpose of showing the student of this philosophy just how the law of habit becomes a sort of pivotal point on which success or failure turns, and exactly why no man can become financial independent without developing the habit of systematic saving, the living habits of some of these acquaintances will be described. We'll begin with a complete history, in his own words, of a man who has made a million dollars in a field of advertising, who now has nothing to show for his efforts. The story first appeared in American Magazine, and it is here reprinted through the courtesy of the publishers of this publication. The, st the story is true in every respect, and it has been included as part of this lesson because the author of the story Mr. W.C. Freeman is willing to have his mistakes made public with the hope that others may avoid them. Quote, titled, I have made a million dollars, but I haven't got a cent. End quote. While it is embarrassing, yes, humiliating, publicly to confess to an outstanding fault that has made a good deal of mess of my life today, nevertheless, I had decided to take this confession for the good it may do. I am going to make a clean breast of how I let slip through my fingers all the money I have earned thus far in my lifetime, which approximates $1 million. This amount I made through my work in the field of advertising, except the few thousand dollars I earned up to 25 years of age by teaching in country schools and by writing newsletters to some country weeklies and daily newspapers. Maybe one lone million does not seem a lot of money in these days of millions and even billions, but it is a big sum of money just the same. If there are any who think to the contrary, let them count a million. I tried to figure out the other night how long it would take to do so. I found I could count an average of 100 a minute. On this basis, it would take me 20 days of 8 hours each, plus 6 hours and 40 minutes on the 21st day to do the stunt. I double very much, I doubt very much, if you or I were given an assignment to count $1,000,000 bills upon the promise that all of them would be ours at the end of, of that time that we could complete it. It would probably drive us mad, and a lot of use the money would have been to us then, wouldn't it? Let me say on the outset of my story, that I do not regret, not for one minute, that I spent 90% of that money I made. To wish any of the 90% back at this time would make me feel that I would have denied such happiness to my family and to many others. My only regret is that I spent all of my money. And more besides, if I had today the 10% I could have saved easily, I would have $100,000 safely invested and no debts. If I had this money, I would feel really and truly that I was rich. And I mean just this, 
for I have never had a desire to accumulate money for money's sake. Those school teaching and newspaper correspondence days of mine brought some cares and responsibilities, but they were met optimistically. I married at the age of 21 with the full approval of parents on both sides who believed thoroughly in the doctrine of preaching by Henry Ward Beecher that, quote, early marriages are virtuous in marriages, quote, just one month and one day after I was married, my father met a tragic death. He was suffocated, suffocated by coal gas. Having been an educator all his life, and one of the best, he had not accumulated any money. When he passed out of our family circle, it was up to all of us to pull together and get along somehow, which we did. Apart from the void left in our home by my father's death, my wife and I had my mother and only sister lived together. We had a joyful life, despite the fact that it was a tight squeeze to make ends meet. My mother, who was exceptionally talented and resourceful, she had taught school with my father until I was born, decided to open her home to a married couple, old friends of the family. They came to live with us, and their board helped pay expenses. My mother was known far and wide for the wonderful meals she served. Later on, two well-to-do women, friends of the family, were taken into our home, thus increasing our revenue. My sister helped very substantially by teaching a kindergarten class, which met in the big living room of our home. My wife contributed her share to the household by taking charge of the sewing and mending. Those were very happy days. Nobody in the household was extravagant or had any extravagant tendencies, except perhaps myself, for I was always inclined to be free with money. I liked to make gifts to the family and to entertain friends. When the first baby was came into our home, a boy, we all thought heaven had opened the doors to us. My wife's parents, who took the keenest and deepest interest in our affairs, had who, and who always ready to lend a helping hand, were equally happy over the coming of their first grandchild. My brother-in-law, much older than my wife, and a bachelor, could not understand at first the joy we all felt. But even he began to strut around like a proud peacock. After a while, what a difference a baby makes in a home. I am injecting these details into my story merely to emphasize how the early days of my life were lived. I had no opportunity to spend much money, and yet I had as much happiness in those days as I have ever had since. The strange thing about it all is that the experience of those days did not teach me the value of money. If anybody ever had a practical lesson to guide him into this future... I certainly had it, but let me tell you how this early experience affected me. The birth of my son inspired me to do something that I would make more money than I was getting at teaching school and in the writing of newspapers. I did not want my wife, my, my mother, and sister to feel they had to have to continue indefinitely to do their part in sustaining the household. Why should a fellow, big and strong and healthy as I have always been, and with a reasonable amount of ability, be content to remaining a spoke in the wheel. Why Why should I be the whole wheel as far as providing for the family was concerned? Following my desire to make more money, I took on selling of books in addition to teaching and writing for newspapers. This earned me quite a little extra money. Finally, I gave up teaching and concentrated on selling books and writing for newspapers. My book selling took me to Bridgeton, New Jersey. It was there... It was here that I got my first real start in money. I had to be away from home a great deal to do this work, but the sacrifice was worthwhile. 
I earned enough money in a few weeks to send more money home than I had contributed to the household in any year from my school teaching and newspaper correspondence. I became interested in newspaper in that city, the Morning Star. It seemed to me that the editor and publisher of the paper needed a helper. I called on him and told him so. He said, Heavens, young man, how can I hire you? I am not earning enough money to pay for my own living. That's just it, I said. I believe together we could make the star success. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll work for you for one week for one dollar a day. At the end of the week, if I've made good, I expect you to pay me three dollars a day for the second week. And then, if I continue to do well, I expect you to pay me six hours a day for the third week, and will continue then on until the paper makes enough money to pay me fifty dollars a week. The owner agreed to my proposition. At the end of two months, I was being paid fifty dollars a week, which in those days was considered a big salary. I began to feel that I was well on my way toward making money, but all I wanted it for was to to make my family more comfortable. $50 a week was just four times as much I had made teaching school. My job at the Star embraced editorial writing, not very brilliant, reporting, just ordinary, the writing and selling of advertisements, fairly successful, proofreading, bill collecting, and so forth. It kept me humping six days a week, but I could stand it, for I was strong and healthy, and besides, the work was very interesting. I would also contributed correspondence to the New York Sun, Philadelphia Record, and Trenton, New Jersey Times, which brought me in the average of $150 a month. For this, I was good news. I was in good news territory. I learned a lesson on the star, which eventually shaped the course of my life. I found out that there is a great deal more money to be earned by selling advertising for newspapers than in writing for them. Advertising brings grist to the mill. I put over one advertising stunt on the star, a write-up of the South Jersey oyster industry, paid for by the oystermen, that brought in $3,000 cash, which the publisher divided with me 50-50. I had never seen so much money at one time in all my life. Think of it, $1,500, 25% more than I had made in two years of schooling and odd tasks. Did I save this money or part of it? I did not. What was the use? I could do so much with it to make my wife, boy, mother, sister happy that I let it go far easier than I had made it. But would it not have been a fine thing if I had put this money away for a rainy day? My work in Bridgeton attracted the attention of Sam Hudson, New Jersey correspondent of the Philadelphia Record, who was a shining example of the type of newspaper man whose greatest pleasure in life is doing things for others. Sam told me that it was time for me to get located in a big city. He thought I had it in me to make good. He said he would get me a job in Philadelphia. He did, and I moved with my wife and my baby to Germantown. I was given charge of the advertising department of the Germantown, this Philadelphia Gazette, a weekly newspaper. Break, break. I would like to have a quick word from our sponsor. Thank you for your time. Let's get back to the reading. At the start, I did not make as much money as I had earned in Bridgetown because I had to give up my newspaper correspondence. The news for this section was covered by the other correspondents, but very soon I was making 25% more money 
The Gazette increased its size three times, accommodating its advertising, and each time I received a very substantial increase in salary. In addition to this, I was given a job to gather social news for the Sunday edition of the Philadelphia Press. Bradford Merrill, managing editor of the newspaper, now a very important New York newspaper executive, assigned me a big territory to cover. This kept me busy every night in the week except Saturdays. I was paid $5 a column, but I averaged seven columns every Sunday, which made me $35 a week extra. It was more money for me to spend, and I spent it. I did not know anything about budgeting my expenses. I just let it in as it came. I let it go as it came. I did not have time or thought I hadn't to watch my step in spending. A year later, I was invited to join the advertising staff to Philadelphia Press, a big opportunity for a young man for who I w got a wonderful training under the management of William L. McLean, now owner of the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin. I still retained my job as a gatherer of social news, so my income was just about the same as I was making in Germantown. But before long, my work attracted the attention of James Elverson, Sr., publisher of the old Saturday Night and Golden Days, who had just purchased the Philadelphia Inquirer. I was offered and accepted the advertising management of this newspaper. This meant a big increase in my income, and soon after there came a happy increase in my family, a birth of a daughter. Then I was able to do what I had longed to do since the birth of my son. I got the family together again under one roof, my wife and two babies, my mother and sister. At last, I was able to relieve my mother of any cares or responsibilities. Never again did she ha have either as long as she lived. She died in her 81st year, 25 years after my father's death. I shall never forget her last words to me, quote, Will, you have never caused me a moment's worry since you were born, and I could not have had a more than I could not have had more than you have given me had I been the Queen of England. Quote. I was making at this time four times more money than my father had made as a superintendent of a public schools in my hometown, Phillipsburg, New Jersey. All this all the money, however, passed out of my pockets as easily as water flows through a sieve. Expenses increased with every increase in my income, which is the habit, I suppose, with most people. There was no sane reason, though, for letting my expenses go beyond my income, which it, I did. I found myself piling up debts, and from this time on, I was never out of debt. I did not worry about my debts, though, for I thought I could pay them off at any time. It never occurred to me, not until fully 25 years later, that debt eventually would bring upon me not only great anxiety and unhappiness, but that I would lose friends and credit as well. But I must pat myself on the back for one thing. I was given a full rein to my big fault, spending money as fast as I made it, often faster, but I never shirked my work, and I was always trying to find more things to do, and I always found them. I spent very little time with my family. I would go home to dinner every night and romp with the babies until their bedtime. Then I would return to the office and often work. So the years went by. Another daughter arrived. Presently, I wanted my daughters to have a pony and a cart. I want my son to have a riding horse. Then I thought I needed a team to take me around with the family, driving them to a close coop or an open trap. I got them all. Instead of one horse and a carryall and perhaps a team, which would have been sufficient for our needs and something we could have afforded, I had to have a stable with all that goes with it. This outfit cost me nearly one-fourth of my annual income. Then I took up golf. 
This was in my 41st year. I went at my play the same as I went at my work. I put my whole heart into it. I learned to play pretty well. My son and elder daughter played with me, and they learned to play well too. It was necessary that my younger daughter should spend the winter in the south and summers in the Anirondacks. But instead of her mother going with her alone, I felt it would be fine if the son and other daughter went along with them. This arrangement was carried out. They went to Pinehurst, North Carolina, every winter and to expensive resorts in the Anirondacks or New Hampshire in the summer. All this took a great deal of money. My son and elder daughter were keen about golf and spent a lot of money on it. I also dispersed quite a little on golf course around New York. Between the three of us, we won 80 prizes, most of which are now in storage. I sat down one day and calculated these prizes had cost me. I discovered that each trophy had cost $250, or a total of $45,000 over a period of 15 years, an average of $3,000 a year. Ridiculous, wasn't it? I entertained lavishly at my home. Montclair folks thought I was a millionaire. I frequently invited groups of businessmen to have a day of golf at the club and then to have dinner with me in the eve. They would have been satisfied with a plain home dinner, but no, I must serve them an elaborate affair staged by a famous caterer. These dinners never cost less than $10 a plate, which did not include to money spent for music while they were dining. I had a quartet come to the house, our dining room comfortably seated 20 people, and it was filled to capacity many times. It was all very lovely, and I had, and I was glad to be their host. In fact, I was very happy over it. I never stopped to think how rapidly I was piling up debts. The day came when they, when they began to bother me a lot. I had entertained so many guests at the golf club one month, paying for luncheon, cigars, green fees, and my bill was $450. This attracted the attention of the directors of the club, who were all good friends of mine and very much interested in my welfare. They made it their business to tell me that I was spending entirely too much money, and they wished for my sake that I could check my expenses. This gave me a bit of a jolt. It made me think seriously long enough to get rid of my horses and traps. At a big sacrifice, of course, I gave up our home and moved back to the city. But I did not leave any unpaid bills in Montclair. I borrowed the money to pay them, and it always easy for me to get all the money I wanted, despite my well-known financial shortcomings. Here are two sidelights of my experiences during, quote, my flaring 40s. Besides spending money foolishly and perhaps recklessly, I loaned it with equal abandon. In cleaning out my desk at home before moving to the city, I looked over a package of due bills a total of which was over 40000 That was money handed out to just anybody who came along. I tore them all up, but I realized that if I had that money in hand, I wouldn't owe a dollar. One of the prosperous businessmen I had entertained many times, who in turn entertained me, said to, said to me, quote, Billy, I've got to stop going out outings with you. You spend entirely too much money for me. I can't keep up with you, quote think of that coming from a man who was making more money than I was. It should have struck home, but it didn't. I went on spending just the same and foolishly thinking that I was having a good time. And with no thought of the future, 
This man is now one of the vice presidents of one of the New York's greatest financial institutions, and it reported to be worth many millions of dollars. I should have taken his advice. In the fall of 1908, after my disastrous experience of six months in another line of business following my resignation from the Hearst organization, I resumed newspaper work at the advertising manager at the New York Evening Mail. I had known Henry L. Stoddard, editor and owner, back in the Philadelphia days when he was political correspondent for the press. Despite the fact that I was bothered by debts or did the best work of my life in the Evening Mail, and made more money during the five years I was associated with it than I had ever made before. Moreover, Mr. Stoddard gave me the privilege of syndicating advertising talks, which ran his paper for 1,000 consecutive publication days, and earned me more than $55,000. Mr. Stoddard, very generous in many other ways, had frequently paid me special sums of money for doing what he considered unusual things in the way of developing business. During this period, I was so deeply in debt that, in order to keep things moving as smoothly as possible, but without retrenching in the slightest way in my expenses, I borrowed money from Peter to pay Paul and Paul to pay Peter. That item of $55,000 earned from syndicating advertising talks would have more than paid all my debts and left a nice nest egg besides. But all it was spent as easily as though I had in the care in the world. In 1915, I went on my own in the advertising business. From that time until the spring of 1922, my fees ran into very big figures. I was still making more money than I ever did and was spending it just as fast as I made it. Until finally, my friends got tired of making loans. If I had shown the slightest inclination to curb my expenses to the extent of only 10%, these wonderful men would have been willing to divide 50-50 with me, letting me pay them 5% of it and saving 5%. They did not care so much about the return of the money they had loaned me as much as they wanted to see me pull myself together. The crash in my affairs came five years ago. Two friends who had stood by me loyally became impatient and told me frankly that I needed, to drastic, I needed a drastic lesson. They gave it to me, all right. I was forced into bankruptcy, which nearly broke my heart. I felt that every person I knew was pointing the finger of scorn at me. This was very foolish. While there was a comment, it was not at all unfriendly. It, it was expressive of keen regret that a man who had attained so much prestige in his profession and who had earned so much money should have allowed himself to go into a financial difficulties. Proud and sensitive to the core, I felt the disgrace of bankruptcy so keenly that I decided to go to Florida where I had once done a special piece of work for a client. It seemed to me that the becoming the El Dorado, I figured that maybe I could make a sufficient money in a few years so that I could return to New York, not only with a competency, but with enough to pay all my debts in full. For a time, it looked though I would realize this ambition. But I was caught in the big real estate collapse. So here I am, back in the old town where I once had big earning power, and hundreds of friends and well-wishers. It has been a strange experience. One thing is certain. I have learned my lesson at last. I feel sure that the opportunities will come my way to redeem myself, and that my earning power will be restored to me. And when that time comes, I know that I shall be able to live as well as I ever did on 40% of my income. Then I shall divide the remaining 60% into two parts, setting aside 30% to pay my creditors, and 30% for insurance and savings. If I allowed myself to feel depressed over my past, 
or filled my mind with worries, I would not be capable of carrying on the fight to redeem myself. Besides, I would be ungrateful to my Maker for having endowed me with the wonderful health of all my life. Is there any greater blessing? I would be ungrateful to the memory of my parents, whose splendid training has kept me anchored pretty safely to moral standards. Slipping from my moral moorings is an infinitely more serious in the end, and then slipping from thrift standard. I would lack appreciation of the encouragement and support I've had in this generous measure from hundreds of businessmen and to my good friends who helped me build a fine reputation in my profession. These memories are the sunshine of my life, and I shall use them to pave the way to my future achievement. With the abundance of health, unfaltered faith, unflagging energy, increasing optimism, unbounded confidence that a man can win his fight, even though he commences late in life to realize the kind of fight he must make it is and anything but death to stop him. Stop him. All right, this is uh, Ken. I'm going to stop for a second. I don't I have not been doing this little side comment in previous readings. But I'm going to end uh, today's podcast with his story. This is uh, Mr. Freeman's story. Um, I don't know about you, but this hit home. This one hit home. So, all right. Check out the blog that's going to be linked to hear my story. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time today. I hope you learned as much as I did in this reading. If you ever desire to connect with me, you can email me at kb at keybravo.com. That is kb at keybravo.com. Have a wonderful day and may you be blessed with all the success you endeavor.